Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church. We are delighted you have chosen to listen in today. It's our hope the message of Jesus will continue to spread and bear fruit, both in your life and the world around us. For more digital content, feel free to check us out on the web at calvarybcmoultrie.com. And now for today's message. First Corinthians chapter 7. I'll start in verse 1. It says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her body. But the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. But the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. That you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain as single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. I don't know what your your experience with maybe uh, singleness is, like I said. Um, I remember, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, I grew up with a very negative view towards it. That it was essentially something that is the lack of something. Like, you are basically an incomplete person. And one of the things we see in the Bible, one of the reasons I think this could be is because the Bible has such a high view of marriage and sexuality. So, for instance, maybe the worldview that, like, for instance, like, sex is gross, or, there's no place for that in Christianity. That's, like, not a thing. It's a gift, a gracious gift of God. Husband, your body was made in a particular way to bring pleasure towards your wife. Wife, your body was made in a particular way to bring pleasure towards your husband. God was not too spiritual to make sex. Therefore, married couples, we should not be too spiritual to avoid it. No. The Bible has such a high view of marriage that sometimes what happens along the way is sometimes marriage is so highly seen that it actually thinks that almost singleness is an, is an enemy. I think Vicky's got a slide back up there. It should be like a church history slide. It might be down towards the bottom. Maybe you're wondering how this has happened. In the early church, this right here is what I call an oversimplistic chart of church history. So you get what you pay for. There you go. So early church history, what happens? Singleness and marriage, both of them are seen as honorable. If you look at church history, both marrieds and singles find a great place in the church. Marriage was actually held up super high. In this period, it was expected that men would actually just cheat on their wives all the time. Christianity comes in and says, absolutely not. That it is a picture of Christ in the church. Marrieds come along. 
Singles come along. Here's the thing. Singles were seen as almost outcasts in society in Roman, in the Roman world. And all of a sudden, Christianity brings a dignity to them. But here's the problem. Right from the get-go, if this line right here is a healthy view of marriage and singleness, where both are held in tension, this is what happens immediately in church history. Singleness starts to get elevated because it's, quote, more spiritual. That, that basically what happens is marriage becomes like this licensed fornication. Like, you know, if you need to do that, get married. But the only problem is that's not in the Bible. So this grows and grows and grows and grows until marriage is seen as like this almost like borderline horrible thing. Until around 1500. Anybody want to guess why maybe around 1500? So you have what's called the Protestant Reformation. And what happened is the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, all of them, they saw celibacy and singleness as evil. That's what priests do. What would happen at this time, priests would take this vow of celibacy or this vow of singleness, but they would have like a hundred prostitutes on the side. But they would pretend like they were spiritual and they were single and all these type of things. And he was like, Martin Luther was like, this is a sham. This is a total sham. So what happened was the hammer swung the other way. And now here's what happens. If you maybe were a single, you grew up maybe in a church. Singleness was seen as almost like an incompleteness, like a problem that needed fixing. You would get comments about it all the time. Are you still single? I mean, you want to answer back, are you still married? Like, I mean... Are you sorted yet? And it's interesting. The reason why, the major reason why here is because though the reformers actually swung this way, they kept the Roman Catholic view of celibacy and singleness, I believe, along the way. Here's what it is. If you're wondering, what is the spiritual gift of singleness? This is what I do not believe, all right? Here's what most people would say. Most commonly, it says, God supernaturally gifts some people with the ability to be perfectly content in their singleness, where they experience less sexual temptation than those not gifted with with the spiritual gift. They will never get married because they have no unction to get married. I do not think that this is right. First Corinthians seven, where would, what are some problems with this view? One of the things you'll see right away. So, uh, go ahead and skip to verse eight. I'll show you kind of where it comes from. And then one of the things I'll do after that is show you why it's not right. And then the kicker, why this matters for you singles and why this matters for you marrieds. You came in here thinking, I'm married today. I get nothing out of this. Ain't wrong. It's going to be great. So verse seven and eight, here's what he says. Now a concession. Not a command. So he's saying, I'm not commanding all people to do this. I wish that all were as I myself am. This is Paul saying, I wish that everybody was single toward like I am. But each man has his own. What do you see right there? Here's the thing. When people have read this, they read this and they think, oh, 
it must be a spiritual gift. What are some of the problems of this? Here's one of the big problems. Every time Paul uses this word, he's not talking about spiritual gifts. He does sometimes. But he doesn't. All the time. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain as single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. This is kind of a weird verse. Because if you read it wrongly, it'll give the picture of kind of like your dog who's just like howling out for girl dogs, all right, around the neighborhood, but he's locked inside of a fence. Like I said, I do not think that this is the correct interpretation of it. Paul's not giving a ground rule for saying, oh, if you experience sexual temptation at all, therefore you'll know you don't have the gift of singleness. What's one of the major reasons for this? Well, one of the major reasons, all right, that we can see here is the fact, where does it say? But if, if they, he would not say they. He would say a person. If a person can't do this, what Paul has in mind, is a couple who are engaged. And what happens is they are so lovey-dovey towards each other. Like, maybe not even in an appropriate way. But they are longing for one another's bodies. And they're staying, they're trying to stay single so that they can have some extra time to devote for the Lord. But what happens in the midst of that is that they are completely distracted to the point where they actually do not have any of the effects, the good effects of singleness, nor do they have any of the good effects of marriage. This is another reason why I don't think this view is correct. Let's say the spiritual gift of singleness is a, is a legit thing. And one in a million people have it. How much would you expect Paul to write people who are one in a million? Do you think he would give them um, a sentence? Really, there's not much encouragement to actually give. Oh, for the uh, people who are, have the spiritual gift of singleness, keep on going. The Lord will give you everything you need. Let's go to a screenshot here. I'll give you a screenshot of the text that we're actually reading today. So this is a screenshot of all the texts that we're reading today. How much of this would you expect? If there's such a thing as a spiritual gift of singleness, it may be one in a thousand, one in a hundred thousand, one in a million people have this. How much do you think Paul would actually give here? Maybe. Let's see. Maybe. Let's see. Maybe this much. How much does Paul actually deal with singles here? Let's highlight it. That much. All of a sudden you can see, wait a minute. There is a problem here. You might be asking, well, David, if singleness isn't a spiritual gift, what is it? Let's look at verse 6 again. Says this now as a concession, not a command. I say this. I wish all that were my were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Is marriage a gift? Yes. Is singleness a gift? Yes. Is singleness a spiritual gift? No. This is what we would call a gift of circumstance. Here's what I mean. It is super easy to tell if you have the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Look at your left hand. Is there a ring right there? If the answer is yes, God has graced you with a gracious gift of marriage. If there is not a ring there, 
God has gifted you at this moment with the gracious gift of singleness. But here's the thing, and this is why I bring this up. It is not a fixed gift. Here's what this means. So, married couples, I do not mean to make this a Debbie Downer day. 50% of you will be single again. Half of you will be single again. Unless the rare event happens where both spouses die at the same time, one of you will be single again. That's not something that we like to think about. That is part of the curse of Adam. This is why this matters. Singles right now. You must see the gracious gifting that you have. Because if you don't right now, you will actually not be able to enjoy marriage one day. For those of you who have had a spouse die, you need to hear this this morning. Here's why. Because once your spouse dies, here's what this means. It means your life is not over. When your spouse dies and her life ends or his life ends, your life does not. And marriage, here's why it matters for you. Because what Paul is about to do is he is about to show you the trajectory of your life. What your marriage should be aimed at. What your kids, rearing kids, should be aimed at. That we can, let's say, have families and raise kids and we can actually be shooting in the wrong direction. So what Paul does with singleness is he shows us the trajectory by which we should live our lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to skip a little bit forward. Let's go to verse 25. Let's see some of Paul's reasoning for what he does. Now concerning betrothed, or if you notice there's probably a footnote there in your Bible, that means the word literally is virgins, those who, who are not married or might be engaged. All right. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. He says, I have no command from the Lord. That does not mean he is about to just make something up. That's not what he means. Some have taken us to be like, you know what? This was just Paul's like thing, but you know, that doesn't apply to us. That is not how Paul would say this. But I give my judgment as one by the Lord's mercy. He was trustworthy. He's like, I hope that you would think that just because I don't have a specific word from the Lord for you does not mean that what I'm about to say I'm making up. I think in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who will marry will have worldly troubles. I would spare you that. Next slide. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. And those who mourn 
as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as they were not rejoicing. And those who buy, though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now, you probably read something there. Some things that probably caught you a little off guard. All right? Back up one slide real fast. Um, Let me see. Uh, Go forward one slide. Verse 29. So one of the things he says here, let those who have wives live as though they have none. You might have read that and you might be like, wait, what, what is he, what is he talking about? So I'll tell you what this doesn't mean. So for instance, let's say you're driving home. You get off work, guys. Like you get off work during the day. And like, you make it a custom, alright, to call your wife after work just to let her know, hey, you're off of work and you're coming home. You read this verse in the morning. And you're like, I don't need a caller. I need to live as though. I have no wife. You get home. She's mad at you because like, where were you? Like, I, you usually call. You didn't call. And you're just like, hey, Paul says I should live as if I don't have a wife. So I don't even know why I'm talking to you right now. What is Paul saying here? What is Paul saying up here? There is a key, 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 key verse in this. It is the last line that explains the whole section. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here's what I'm... So some of you know I just got back from Colorado. Uh, I was visiting my brother. And uh, we were going snowboarding. I beat the mess out of myself on the first day. It was a huge mistake. Um, kind of almost ruined the rest of my week. It was pretty tough. All right. Even though I'm kind of an experienced snowboarder, I was just doing some dumb stuff, you know? We do it. Whenever you drive to the, to the snowboard resorts out there in Colorado, what happens is you have these four-lane interstates. And what happens eventually is you have something that's called the Eisenhower t- Tunnel. What the Eisenhower Tunnel is, is it's a death trap. That's all it is. It stinks, all right? Basically what happens is it takes four lanes and condenses it down to two. So what happens is you're going 70 miles an hour. You think you're making this great progress. And then 40 miles before you actually get to the Eisenhower Tunnel, bumper-to-bumper traffic. All 40 miles to the Eisenhower Tunnel. Why? You might be thinking, why did they do that? That's, that's so dumb. Here's the thing. It's Colorado. We live in South Georgia. We don't have mountains. It's Colorado. You can't just pick up the mountain and move it. Unless it's by faith, I guess. You can't just pick up the mountain and move it. You're limited. It's the way that things are. It's the way that things are in, in that set. Like, it's just, it's how things are naturally the way they are. Here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying it's good for a man to, to be single. And he's not contradicting, for instance, like Genesis 1 where it says, like, it's good for, for a man not to be alone. That's not what he's doing. He's not contradicting that. Here's what he is showing, though. That whatever we believe about, let's say, Genesis 1 and 2. To be fruitful, to multiply, the, what many people call the creation mandate. We have to read in light of the new creation mandate, is what I would call it. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's what he is meaning here. That the Christian life, what you do is you, in your mind, it is a reprioritization of what is going on and what you spend your time and your energy on. Here's what I mean. There are things in this life. For instance, this one right here. Those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. What is Paul saying? Quit your job? He's saying, no, don't quit your job. He's saying, you should walk to work with the intention of remembering that there are people there. You live your life not for work. You live your life what not for money. Some of you, you are trying to earn $200,000 a year because you think maybe that's going to give you security. Pause. Nothing against making $200,000 a year, but what are you thinking? Paul would say, what are you thinking? The Son of God has come into the world. He has given you a mission. You're spending your entire life trying to build up wealth, 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 when it all will disappear in an instant. You're trying to have the HGTV house. Nothing against pretty houses. Some of you guys, Ben, has an incredible talent for making stuff beautiful. Nothing against beautiful houses. But if your goal is a beautiful house, your house will disappear one day. That Paul is saying, The present form of this world is passing away. And one of the present forms of this world that is passing away is marriage. That makes it under live as those who do. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, oh, married couple, one of you, you guys just need to separate and live single lives. He shows other places in the sex. That's not the case. But to keep in mind... Marriage is a great priority for you. In some ways, it is the one of the highest priorities for you outside of being a disciple for Jesus Christ. That is your primary role in this life. You are first disciple, then spouse and husband and dad. Paul is assuming something in this text. When he says those... Who mourn, live as though you're not mourning. Those who rejoice, live as though you're not rejoicing. Those who buy, they they pretend like there's no goods to buy. Don't spend all your time. Those who deal with the world is those who have no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, go and like shelter yourself in the home. Store up canned goods and wait for the rapture. That's not what he's saying. Paul's assumption in this. Is this, that followers of Jesus, what they do at their base level is that they are the kind of people who live outward-oriented lives. Some of you will hear that, and you're an introvert, and you start having a panic attack. I'm not saying God has called you to live extroverted lives. He has called us to live outward-oriented lives. 
Here's what this means. This has two aspects for you and I, for every single Christian. One, that we are continually forming friendships with those who do not know Jesus Christ. And two, that we are pouring into one another. That we cannot do one of these exclusively from the other. That we are to live outward-oriented lives. That's right, as you look around at one another, you are to know and love and care for one another. But that is not it. That you are also meant to be out there. This is why how Paul can talk about this. Singleness reveals the trajectory of every Christian's life. But there is a difference. There is a difference between, for instance, a single and a married person. Let's look at verse 36. Uh, let me see, is that right? Yeah. Okay. This right here, you will notice this does not line up with your Bible in your hand. It's The reason why is because the ESV's got a pretty terrible translation here. They're both equally offensive to American people. So, I mean, you can take what you want. But what I did is I put the NASB up here because it gives, a, for instance, a scenario. But if any man... Am I in the right section? Let me pause before I do this. 32. Let's go to 32. I was about to say, this does not seem right. 32. Here's what Paul says. He's, remember, he's just said, I wish people were single like I am. He says this. Here's what I want. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the, of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. Pause. When some of you, you hear the the word worldly things, here's what you think about. You think about like Jimi Hendrix albums and like Metallica and like that stuff. Like you're, you're thinking, oh, worldly stuff. Like, you know, like, like rap music and like, that's not what he's talking about here. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word worldly, what it's doing is it's talking about things that are, for instance, maybe morally wrong. But other times, like in this case, he's talking about earthy stuff. Things that aren't necessarily bad. Like you you, you think about earthy stuff. We are earthy creatures that enjoy earthy things like football games. And marriage and food. All these stuff, they're not bad things. They're earthy stuff. But the married woman is anxious about earthy, earthy things. How to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's saying this. He's saying, I'm not out there saying you need to do this, that you need to be single. Neither am I today. I'm not calling a single person in this room. To like lifelong singleness today. That's not what I'm doing. Even singles in this room. I'm not saying 
lifelong sin. That's not what I'm saying today. So if you hear that, don't hear that. But to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. This is where you begin to see the differences in between the two gifts. Marriage and singleness. Singleness, Paul does not call it better because it is morally better. Because it somehow makes you spiritual, more spiritual. That is not the case. It is not better in quality. I'm not more godly than you because I'm a single man. This is what he's talking about. The difference between a married man and a single man is time and anxiety. The difference between the two is time and anxiety. Here's what I mean by that. I'll give you guys a sample of my schedule every day that I live by. 5 a.m., I wake up. 5.15, I go to CrossFit. 6.15, I go home, shower, and get coffee. 6.30, I memorize parts of the Bible. 7 o'clock, I read the journal and scriptures. 7.45, personal prayer time, praising God, personal request. 8 o'clock, start the day, and look what I have to do work-wise. Now, pause. Just in terms of, like, reading the Bible, how many of you married couples make it to 8 o'clock before something goes wrong? Before somebody's screaming? Like, that just doesn't happen. It's not bad. You've chosen a good thing. You've chosen a great thing. You've chosen marriage. You've chosen children. But the difference is, you notice all of a sudden, we've only made it to 8 o'clock. And there are no, for instance, quote, distractions. Don't hear bad things when I say distract, but there's no distractions. Like, I, I, there's none. This is what Paul is talking about. That the goal of every human being is this right here. Undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's what this means. Maybe you're hearing this today. And you're like, David, why would anybody ever choose lifelong singleness? That sounds like hell to me. This is why. Because maybe you grew up in in, in a Christian subculture. Where you saw Christianity as like a subset of your life. Like something that you kind of do. That you go to Sundays. The only problem is, that's not Christianity. Our biggest claim is we have found a joy and a treasure greater than anything in this world. We have found the risen Lord who has found us, actually. He's changed us from the inside out, and we will pursue him all our days with everything that we have. The Christianity, that's just, it's not like this, for instance, subset of your life. It is Everything. And if it is not everything, then it is not real. It influences the choices that you make. Whether you move here, whether you spend money on this, whether you buy that car, it makes, it makes, like, it makes an effect on everything. How you live your schedule, what you give your time to, everything. Here's what this means. I'm going to talk to you singles for a second. So some of you singles in this room. So how do you know if you're a single? Again, look at your left finger. All right. Left hand, ring finger. If there's nothing in it, I'm talking to you. 
here's some things this means for you. Your present singleness is not an enemy of your future marriage. Your present singleness is not an enemy of your future marriage. Why do I say this? Because I'm a single guy and I know the tendency for all of us to view our singleness as something that is less than and is an enemy to what we truly want. Here's the thing. Your singleness is not an enemy. However, you can misuse your singleness. You can misuse it on selfish things. And here's the, here's the problem. You might think, oh, I'm using my singleness to prepare for marriage, but you're actually spending it on yourself. Here's the thing. You're not actually using your singleness to prepare for marriage. That you're living an unintentional life as a single. Here's the problem. You will have a darn of a time living an intentional life as a married person to serve the Lord with all that you have. No, you were created for undivided devotion to the Lord. Here's what this means. You want to spend your singleness in a way that is completely outward oriented. This means more time in the scriptures, more time in prayer. This means getting to know, spending time with families in the congregation. Some of you maybe, you say, you know what, I'm, I'm more of an evangelist, but you don't know anybody here. Or you're very selective. You'll, you'll hang out with other single people. The married people in this room need you. Don't always go running out of here on Sunday. Let's say to, to eat with your friends or the, no, no, no. Spend time with people. Invite yourself over in some ways to those in the congregation. Be like, hey, when can we have dinner? Why? Because this is where you get to encourage them. Singles. There is a single in this room. I promise you, they should be in charge of a widow's ministry here at our church. Why? I'm not saying you go visit every widow, but you coordinate with the members of the congregation to be like, all right, this widow has been seen this week. We want to make sure she gets seen by someone every week because nobody ever visits her. That does not get done without you, single person. This means you, single people, ask your pastors, hey, what can I do that would help the church body? Spiritually, but also, if you notice, this is a huge facility, all right? It's huge. There are things that we need help with. You ask, you come up with your mind, hey, how can I help? Give me anything, anything. You're constantly praying. What you were doing is you were living a radically unselfish life. Where our world assumes that every single single person is a selfish person. What you are doing is saying, no, I refuse. I will live my life for the good of others. I will not spend my money on myself. Learn gifts for the sake of the body. Maybe playing an instrument. Limit your time on stuff that will actually rob from your Christian life. Even if they're good things. I'll give you an example. Like, so I was a video game junkie. Totally was. All right? Some of you guys are like, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I know. I know. I left them behind in college. 
never to return them again. They're not bad. If you go home and play an hour of Minecraft today, you're not technically, there's nothing, you're not in sin because of that. But here's the thing. You give your life to that over and over again. Here's what's going to happen. You will eventually start living a selfish life. An inward-oriented life instead of an outward-oriented life. Maybe for you it's your phone. You spend three, four, five hours a day. And what you're doing, you don't realize it. But you're actually, you are, you are living a life that revolves around you. Maybe the step, for, one of the steps for you is to limit your apps on your phone. Maybe it's to delete some social media stuff. Again, none of this stuff is wrong. You ain't sin if you got a Snapchat. It's not wrong. But maybe if you're constantly looking at your phone, don't use a digital Bible. Do not use this. Because when you're using it and you're reading, ding, and you're like, oh, da, 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 da. Grab a paper one. Put your phone in the other room. I'm not saying all these things are necessary. I'm saying do whatever it takes to live an outward-oriented life for the sake of service for others. And here's one of the things that that will do. This will prepare you radically if you ever do get married. Because like we said before, if you live an unintentional and if you do not live an outward-oriented life as a single, I guarantee you, you will not do that as a married person. You won't. Without a ton of repentance along the way. And number three today, singleness is, in Paul's mind, it's better than marriage. But there are some caveats. So let's go to verse 36. So the picture here is a dad who is trying to decide whether or not his daughter marries a guy. Alright? Again, this is pretty offensive to the American mind because Americans were all about like, I'm my own person, like, like... Mom and dad don't... The Bible would actually give more authority to parents than maybe you're comfortable with. And that's a good thing. So let's read. But if any man, so this is a dad, thinks he is acting unbecomingly towards his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Here's the idea. This guy has a daughter who is getting older... This might really freak you out. It's okay. You're, we're Americans. We see things as right and weird. That's our only two categories. Most likely, this girl's probably like in her early 20s, 2021, 20, 22. At this time, the average marriage age was like, for men, it was 19 to 21. For girls, it was 12 to 14. That's why Mary, like Jesus' mother, was probably around 14, 15 years old. So what's happening? She's getting a little older. And now all of a sudden there's a marriage opportunity for her. He says this, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. He's like, let her marry. But, maybe this guy, he stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own daughter. He does well. Presumably, this is if his daughter agrees. Like if his daughter agrees, yeah, it would better be for me 
in my singleness to serve Jesus Christ, it would be better for me to actually not marry because of the time. Not because it's more spiritual, but because of the time. Here's what he says. So then both he who gives his virgin daughter in marriage does well. He's like, if you decide to give her in marriage, you've done great. You've done a godly thing. Awesome. Let's throw the marriage party. Awesome. But he who does not give her will do better. He's like, either way, you've, you, you guys have done something good. What if she wants to get married? This right here, I would say, would pretty much undermine that. Like, if she wants to get married, I think the dad lets her marry. And if it must be so, that, I think that's colloquial language for she really, 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 really wants to, then let her get married. It's a great thing. Let her get married. But if you and her decide that, like, it's actually better, you remain still, go for it. He who does not give her in marriage will do better. Better not because it's spiritually better. Not because they're more spiritually mature. Better because it's time. They have more time and ability. Let's look at this next verse real fast. This is where we'll end for today. He gives a final exhortation. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. This means, wives, you were bound to your husband as long as he lives. All right? You married him. Now love him. The rest of your life. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. Only in the Lord. Here's what that phrase means. This means that Paul does not subscribe to missionary dating. Some of you maybe have heard that term, like, um, oh, like, um, you know what? I saw this girl the other day, and she looked like she didn't know the Lord. So, you know, I'm going to have coffee with her, invite her over to my house, you know, like, this idea that you're basically pursuing somebody to evangelize them, but really, honestly, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is initiate a relationship with them. Paul says that actually doesn't work and has devastating consequences. That this person right here, this widow, is free to remarry, but only if the person knows the Lord. That's his minimum. That's that's like that's that's the that's the idea. Right there. That's it. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Here's what he says. I think she's gonna be happier. At the end of the day, she's going to have less anxieties if she actually remains how she is. She lived a life, maybe 30, 40 years of marriage. She's going to be happier, and it's going to be better for her if she stays single. Some of you married people, you need to consider this maybe as time gets on. Maybe you're 70, and maybe, tragically, I do not wish this, but it will happen to, to, to us in this room. Your spouse will die. You will be wondering, should I remarry? What do I do? Is my life incomplete because of marriage? The answer is no. Is my life incomplete because I don't have a spouse now? No. The answer is it is not. It is not. But you might be able to spend the rest of your days serving your local church, having more time to spend with those who do not know Jesus. For the sake of the Lord. Wholly devoted him.
here's where we finish today. You might be wondering, David, why is this important? And you also might be wondering, David, I thought you were going to speak more to singles next week. Oh, trust me, next week is all like application week for singles. So if you're a single and you're like, how do I live this life? You're saying, this sounds hard. All right? This sounds hard. Well, I hope you're here next week. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay some groundwork, but I'm also going to lay some groundwork for you, the married in our congregation. How you invite singles into your life. And why that is a profitable thing. Why you want them and need them as part of the body of Christ. That it's not, the body of Christ is not meant for married couples and married couples just to hang out and singles and singles to hang out. It is not meant to be like that. Here are some quick applications. If we do not honor godly singleness the way that much evangelical culture does not, we fall into some real dangers. Here are some of the side effects that I've seen of this. All right? Some of these, I think I think a few of these maybe fit our congregation, and here's what I want you to do. If I say any of these and you think it's you, I need you to be convinced that I deeply love you, and I'm not here just to shine spotlights on you and be like, look at how what they're doing. I'm not doing that. Here's what I'm saying. To a degree, we will all fit into one of these categories most likely. Because that falls under the assumption that we as sinners need the Lord. And we need his help. One. If we do not give, for instance, godly singleness, the honor, and we just elevate, let's say, marriage. Instead of being a safe haven for singles here, Churches can often be a place of emotional torment. I think we do very good here as a congregation. Some of you guys are awesome. You don't treat singlenesses, single single people, as if they are like something that's incomplete. You're not always trying to like hook us up with your sister or your aunt or your aunt's aunt or your sister's girlfriend's best friends, like whatever. Like that's good. Here's another side effect I've seen. A cranking up of every text in the Bible that mentions marriage to a volume level 14 out of 10. Now, a person might say, well, David, we want to make a big deal of marriage because our culture is attacking it. I get that. But this is where Christians of the past would warn us that while we do not deny biblical truths, we totally, we totally put them out there. We must keep the balance and proportion that Scripture teaches. Here's why. I think one of the results of this, if we do this, if we crank, let's just say marriage, and we just emphasize it and, and pretend like the problem with singles is that they're not married. Here's what it will, here's one of the effects that I've seen. Like this is, this is American Christian culture. It will relocate It will relocate the mission of God from the world to the home. I'm not saying that God does not care about our homes. That's not what I'm saying. 
It will relocate the mission of God from the world that we live in to our own little homes. And you might be thinking, okay, David, what, what, what are the wrong side effects of this? Here's the one that I will say that most often happens. You will try to preach the gospel truth to your family, but it will be a Christian faith that is devoid of a missionary heart and missionary action. Here's what I mean. Mom and dad, maybe you teach your kids the Bible. You have family worship time. You read Christian books together. And you have other Christians from the church constantly over in your house. Well and good, you do well. That's awesome. Thumbs up. Great stuff. You tell yourself, my primary job is to disciple my home. Great. In one aspect, you are right. But here are some, if this is, let, let me shine some light maybe on some incompletenesses here. Without a missionary heart and without missionary action, families miss out on the treasure that could be theirs. By inviting neighbors, co-workers over, planning nights out with lost friends that you know, making lost friends, that does not contradict the mission of your home. It enhances the mission of your home. It enhances it. It gives your teaching a radical attractiveness. To your kids that just teaching by itself does not have. Two. Without a missionary heart and missionary action. Any teaching of the Christian faith. Will be ineffective and it will ultimately die. Here's what I mean. A family can teach their children the Bible and model prayer to them. But if they never see their parents praying. For the lost. They never hear it at dinner. They never see certain days of the week are almost blocked off where everyone in the family knows that a lost couple is coming over, a lost friend is coming over that doesn't know Jesus. That the family doesn't seek to invite non-Christian friends maybe on their vacations. They never see able members of their family fast for those who live on the same street of you. There's not a family prayer list of those who don't know Jesus hanging up. I'm not saying you need to do all these, by the way. I'm just giving you ideas. The family doesn't model a missionary heart to their neighborhood. Bringing them cookies, throwing pool parties, hosting outdoor movies. Without a heart towards missions and missionary actions like this, your own goal for your family will actually be undermined. The kind of children you might raise. Here, I'll paint a picture of what they might turn out to be. They might know lots of things about the Bible. They might. But they will lack a gentleness and a heart for sinners and sufferers. They will likely have few or no non-Christian friends. They will be overly antagonistic towards the world that they live in. And the faith that they end up passing on will become increasingly hollow until no generations after that will follow what they've teached. That God has called us to live outward-oriented lives. For the single, what I love about this text... Your singleness does not mean that you're not happy and you can't be happy. That is huge. 
that you think maybe your happiness comes when you're married, my friend, there is something better than marriage. There is something better than sex. There is better. There is something better than a wife, a children, than, 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 a, than, than a husband. That is Jesus Christ. And all your life was meant to be lived for him. Whether married or single. Singleness doesn't mean that you don't have any intimacy, as we'll see next week. You certainly will. It doesn't mean that you don't have any family. You certainly will gain family. Both of these are in unexpected ways, though. It doesn't mean that you're going to waste your ministry. Far from it. It doesn't mean that you're going to waste your sexuality. Far from it. It's not easy, but it's also not too hard. And finally, where we end today... The gifts of marriage and singleness show us the balance that's required when we approach the Bible. That the Bible holds up one, but it also holds up the other. And we cannot deny the goodness of either one of them. But Paul shows us this is what marriage actually looks like in the last days, which we're in. If you want to know why this sounds maybe different than what you read in the Old Testament, it's because that's Paul's assumption. This is marriage in the last days. Everything that you and I have are given for the sake of him. So may we be outward and may we be intentional. Marrieds, may you be outwardly intentional towards the singles. This means inviting them over. This means not allowing them to mope. This means asking them questions like, hey, how has your singleness been so helpful recently? How has it been hard? And hear them out. For singles, God has given you a great gift. A gift with some tears, yes. But just like the marrieds will tell you, that gift comes with some tears too. So may we use our gifts as God has given. Let me pray, guys. And we'll sing to the Lord. Thanks for listening in to today's message. For more information about our church, feel free to visit us at calvarybcmoultrie.com. We hope you will join us again next time. Until then, grace and peace.